Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In May 1954, the United States Supreme Court unanimously declared segregation in public education is a denial of the equal protection of the laws. The Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas case was a leader of many that gave strength and support to the initial struggles for equal education and equal civil rights for all people, regardless of the skin color of any person. Now, 62 years later, the concept of affirmative action admission policies for racial equality in public universities continues and is repeatedly interpreted. In this 2004 archive edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Dr. Elizabeth Allen, now a professor emeritus of nursing at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. As a high school student in 1957, Dr. Allen was one of the first African-American students to integrate the West Virginia high schools. Later, she served as a captain in the United States Army as a combat nurse in Vietnam prior to receiving a master's degree and a Ph.D. in nursing and becoming a professor of nursing at the University of Michigan. In this, the first of a two-part series recorded in April of 2004, in commemoration of the Brown v. Board of Education decision, Dr. Elizabeth Allen and I began our visit with her description of the changes in racial segregation between the years 1954 and 2004. I've seen a couple of things, and, and let me give you the positive one first. And that is, in terms of non-white groups in this, in this country, those who have succeeded secondary to their ability to be into integrated schools have accelerated very, very rapidly, and they've done well, and that's the group that everybody looks at. But my second and most troubling perception is that for the group of persons whom I believe that those, on whom those decisions were made, their chances have gotten worse. And so I, I look at it as a, as a marked two-headed sword. Just tell us more. Tell, describe well, Let me that. tell you what I mean by that. Children who were very poor when the Brown decision was made and whose, whose self-esteem and whose belief in themselves uh, was suspected best, their system has gotten worse. The schools have become much more punitive. Um, the teachers have become, I, I, I truly do believe, progressively worse. Uh, and the resources given to these youngsters has been worse. And you're defining these youngsters as students of color yes. from poorer families. Yes, yes. And I think that the data is, is pointing that out now, that the truth of, of what's happening is that people keep focusing on uh, racial integration as, as improving... Um, non-whites uh, status 
when what is actually happening is that the socioeconomics is what's moving. Rather than, because if you look at the people who are going to college, more of those and, and who are getting into your named colleges are people with money, whether they are black, white, Hispanic, or Arabic. Those are people with money. The kids who were having difficulty in the beginning and whose lot in life was terrible, that lot in life has remained terrible. Because when I was at school, and I'm from an all-black school, we got the best black teachers, and people were interested in you. They lived in the neighborhood with you, and hopefully we'll come back to that at another time. Now, what we get often are the worst white teachers and not particularly the best African-American teachers. Why do you think that is, that the teachers are not from and in the neighborhood? Well, because money separates. And when people get money, they want to move to a better house. They want to move to what they consider a better neighborhood. And that leaves behind the youngsters who really need them the most. Um. When when this when when the integration thing first started, the things that you used to hear, what the things that I used to hear, well, Ms. Jones has to be a good teacher because you know they selected her to go to the white school, and so what happened was the cream of the crop of African American uh, teachers were moved to the white schools, and in turn, your newer uh, less experienced white teachers came to black schools, and the ones who were not particularly wanted in your upwardly mobile white schools came to the inner cities. Do you find that still occurring? Oh, I think it's increased. Explain, think, explain how you see that. How I see it, salaries are higher in the suburbs, but more importantly, resources are allocated. Say, for example, when new communities are occurring in the suburbs, correct? Right. There, there are very few new communities occurring in the, in, in the inner city. Okay? New construction, Look, new people moving that, in. Yes. Okay. So that the money goes to those schools because they have to construct new schools to accommodate those. So those, those schools come with huge communication systems. They come with spaces. They come with play areas. All of that stuff happens. That then means in a tight budget, because budgets are, are allocated, if, say, $100 million is allocated and they have to have schools where the new housing is, those schools will take that money. And so what we have are crumbling resources, crumbling schools, and more students. When my son started teaching, and my son teaches in Detroit, 
he started as a brand new teacher in the third grade with almost 40 third grade students without books, without the number of books, with half the time not even chairs. And so the resources get tighter and tighter as they accommodate the movement. Teachers don't want to constantly be badgered with that. When you compare what is available in your son's classroom to what you have seen being available in uh, Ann Ann Arbor, Arbor, what do you see? Oh, Ann Arbor has the best there is. They have playgrounds, I mean, big playgrounds. They have books for all kids. They go on field trips. They have teacher's aides. They have all of those kinds of things in Ann Arbor. That is not true in my son's classrooms. When you ask the question of the members of the Michigan legislature or those who make the money available to the two school districts, and you ask them, why? Can they explain it to you? No, why are the differences? Attempt. They don't attempt to, to, to address that. How do they respond to your question? Well, they, they say, we're doing the best we can. Okay. If you follow some of the things that came out in the last two, three years, even the money that is allocated to inner-city kids on a child-by-child basis is less than the money allocated on a child-to-child basis in suburban areas. And if we are to believe what they say about the inner-city which is there are less resources in the home, parents are less educated. Now, this is what I hear, and this is what I see. Then it would appear to me that more resources should be allocated. So what we have is a pseudo-form of racial integration in schools because we have more white teachers in black schools. But we do not have more resources in black schools. Before we talk about the what to do and how to resolve this issue, let's address the affirmative action decision of the United States Supreme Court from uh, the spring of 2003. At this point, the effect that is happening right now, because I, I teach at the University of Michigan, is that um, African-American applications and admissions have decreased. Why do you think that is? Because families are, are, are really hesitant to put their children in these kinds of places. Again, why? Because black parents, just like any other parents, are really scared to put their children in a place where they believe that they're not going to be accepted, and that they believe that things are going to happen to them that makes them more ego-sensitive. And so they back away. Where before the decision, people could say they might have a chance, now they're questioning whether or not they have a chance. I think 
one of the things that I hear, because I do work a lot with, with parents, is that they are more likely to seek out historically black schools to put their children in because the, the trauma is so great. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Elizabeth Allen, a professor of nursing at the University of Michigan, honoring the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Topeka Board of Education decision by the United States Supreme Court and discussing the changes in education and of the ability of people of color to integrate into society in the United States. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Liz, you've talked about... um, Liz, what I'd like to ask you about is the essence of African-Americanism, its origin, and how it affects people of color, and specifically black people, now in the United States. I talk about this kind of thing, and I'm becoming more cautious about what I say. When we look at African-Americans in this country, we keep saying, well, they're like Africans or they're like... No, that isn't true. Because the essence of being African-American is the essence of slavery and the way racial boundaries were developed in this country. And part of that has to do with the changing of the collective minds of people in the country. And that has not occurred. When we go back to the Brown decision, one of the things that's been essential to me when I look at Supreme Court decisions that affect groups of people is to read the writings of the person who writes for the majority and the person who writes for the minority on those decisions. And I've gone several times to back to read the one written on the Brown decision. And that opinion opens with, there has been no issue in America that has so divided its people as the issue of race. That has continued to be. We still have the Ku Klux Klan marching. We still have people moving out of neighborhoods when someone black moves in. We still, if we look at what's happening with the release of people from prison today, one of the things that came out just the other day was that of the males who have been released from prison on DNA, they focused in on rape, and that the majority of African-American males who have been released from prison on DNA and have been convicted of rape, those rapes were black males against white females because people still believe that they cannot tell the difference between the way one black male looks or another black male looks. If we look at the situation that occurred in Boston when the man killed his wife and he said, a black man, and they went and rounded them all up. If we look at the change in the drug law 
and the statement that came out on the drug law, that if America had set out to develop a law that would destroy the essence and the structure of the African-American family, they could not have done better than they did with that law. Because those in control continue to be white, those who have little control continue to be black. That has not changed from the days of slavery to now. We don't like to face that. We don't like to deal with that because it is a hurtful kind of situation. It's hurtful in multiple directions. Yes, it's hurtful in multiple directions. Tell us how you see it from some of your personal experience. Tell me what you mean by see it. The hurt, the estrangement, what what, what are we talking well, about? Well, I, th- I think both of those. I think both of those, because I know from some of your experiences that you've shared with me as a high school student, you've experienced it. And I know you have experienced it and observed it based on other things you've said in your adult life. Well, let me just give you one that happened last week. It happened this week, as a matter of fact, on Monday. I have a large growth on my arm that has to be removed. And I go to the surgical clinic. Now, I dress well. I speak the King's English well. And... I teach at the university. And so the nurse who came in to speak with me says, I need you to fill out these papers. Well, they're the same papers that I had filled out five times already. And I said to her in my nicest voice, I said, you know, I've been here five times in the last month. And I'm continually asked the same questions. She looks at me and she says, Well, you should at least know the answers by now. So I repeated this. So later she's got to take my temperature. And she holds up the thermometer to me. And she says, This is a thermometer. I was so angry. So yesterday, day before yesterday, I was telling the dean this. And she looks at me and she said, those kinds of situations would never have occurred to me. They never would have happened to me. But they happen all the time. Now, had I said something, I would have been a pushy black bitch. So I said nothing. But those kinds of things happen all the time, all the time. And you know what? They happen with more frequency now than they did at an earlier time. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Yes, I do know. Because I think that in the society that we live in, People truly believe, and they're supported in their belief, that they really don't have to respect me. Not only do they not have to respect me, 
but that anything that I say back to them can be interpreted if they wish it to be. Because, you see, if you're white, you're always judged against the highest bar. If you're African-American, you're judged against the lowest bar. And that is supported. That is supported. There is implicit as well as structural movements that allow that to happen. The structural movements being? The structural movements being, if we take one of the things that go into an evaluation, there's always how does this person get along with other people in the department. Okay. If I speak up about things that disturb me, then I am evaluated as being disruptive to the area in which I work. That disruption then follows me wherever it is that I go and negatively impacts my ability to be promoted. A second way that that occurs is uh, um, African-Americans are recruited into universities, and they have to follow the same research agendas as others. But don't let their research focus on African-Americans. Because a very good friend of mine the other day says to me, we were talking because this person does research in hypertension, which is number one killer in African-Americans. And the comment was that she had to be real careful because if she used only African-Americans and only African-American researchers, that her research would be interpreted as being black research and therefore not of the same quality as whites who do research. And these are structural issues. How about some of the implicit issues that you uh, mentioned? Oh, implicit issues. Who gets power? Who gets power? If you speak on inequities, you can see who gets the power. The power to speak, travel money, the way criterion come down. If I do something, the criterion for me are much more stringent than the criterion for others. As a matter of fact, even here, one of the things, we had a lot of faculty that had not received tenure. I had a lot of graduate students. They took all of my graduate students, gave them to the non-tenured faculty so that they could then get tenure, but then I never got them back. And because I never got them back, I somehow got moved out of the research thing. And they said, but the rules say you have to do research. But nobody ever talked about the fact that I was given clinical activity so that other people could be promoted and that I never got that back. And you see, this happens to African Americans all the time. You're put on every committee, every committee, you get on. If you say anything, is well, Liz, your role is to teach us. Well, 
how is that my role? And this has been going on a long time. How is it that you still don't know? But let me not know what's going on with white patients or in white environments, and then I'm punished for that. That's the, those are the hidden kinds of agendas. Dr. Elizabeth Allen, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you would recommend to our listeners. I'm going to answer that in two ways. One is I am an avid romance book reader. And I am because I work in the matrix which control people and which people live. And I find that romance books are much better able to deal with it. And so I I read a lot in that area every day. And one of the best romance writers is Linda Howard, and I would suggest that anybody who is interested in the matrix in which people live and make discussions would pick up one of her books. They're very short, but they're good. But the second one, which is because people always want to know if you're intellectual, if you read intellectual books, is the new one by uh, Ron Suskind on the price of loyalty. Uh, Because I think that the issues in the price of loyalty go beyond the interaction between the Treasury Secretary and the current president. I think that those issues interface with so much of the human interaction that goes on. How can I be loyal and serve two masters? I'm African American, and I truly believe that there is a type of very destructive thing going on in in the society. But... I am also a U.S. citizen, and so that says that I have to be loyal in that way. And at what place do I come down, and where do I speak out, and how much do I have to pay, or how long can I continue to pay for being loyal to both, to both issues? Dr. Elizabeth Allen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for asking me. Dr. Elizabeth Allen is a professor emeritus of nursing at the University of Michigan. She's an avid romance reader and recommends any book written by Linda Howard. She also recommends The Price of Loyalty by David Suskind, with former U.S. Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill. This interview was originally broadcast in May 2004. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, Subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. 
the email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541, and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.